Ginger, Ginger broke the window, broke the window, cracked the baker, came out, the boom car out, and landed on his back. Fuck you. I look around this room and I see white faces and black faces, every color in between, and the only thing that I know for sure is that we're all shit. I'll be able to get Talking about revolution. What I saw, that was revelation. You frolicking with the devil's maiden. I said I want my eyes back. Give them back to me. Here. Why not? You took them. Yeah, I'm a piece of shit. I am worthless. As bad as they come. Welcome back to Inside Oz, the world's only Oz review podcast. As always, I'm your host, Neil Thompson. We're back to Series 3 after a bit of a break since the Christmas bonus episode, looking back at the debut with Happy. We've started a new decade in that time, but I hope everything is going well for all of you. Before we get going with today's Series 3 opener, if you're new to the podcast and need to catch up on the first two series as well as some bonus content... You can do so by heading on over to Apple Podcasts, the new name for iTunes, although I'll probably still call it that at some point, as well as Podbean, Stitcher Radio, Acast, and all other major podcasting platforms. Also want to say a big thank you to everyone who has been following the show so far. I was really pleased with the upswing in listenership throughout Series 2, and as I mentioned right back at the beginning, I was anxious as to whether or not people were actually going to listen to me ramble on about a two-decade-old TV show. But as it turns out, here you are, so thank you very much for all of your support, and I'm really looking forward to talking about Series 3. I have particularly fond memories of this one. So with all that being said, let's get to it as we're looking back at Series 3, Episode 1, The Truth Nothing But. The show had, much like last time, been off the air for a year, however in that time while the show was away, HBO had aired the first series of The Sopranos starting in January, and Series 2 of Sex and the City had debuted on June 8th, the month prior to this episode airing. So in 1999, HBO was starting to get their ducks in a row with putting out regular programming throughout the year to compete against the other, but more importantly, free-to-view TV networks. Especially when it came to drama, with ABC airing shows such as Fantasy Island and NYPD Blue, while on NBC you had shows like ER, which was the number one drama on US TV in terms of TV ratings, and would also see the final season of Homicide Life on the Street aired, as well as the debut series of The West Wing. The Sopranos and Sex and the City also had more episodes per series than Oz, which is a trend that will continue over the coming years with other shows by the network, but I'll talk more about that when we get to it. Holding an 8.6 on IMDb, the episode was written by Tom Fontana and directed by Nick Gomez, returning to direct for the third time, and originally broadcast on Wednesday, July 14th, 1999 meaning that this series opener becomes the first to not air in the Saturday night slot. It won't be the last time that the show gets moved around, but again, more on that another time. Also on this day, China announced that it had the capability to make miniaturised nuclear weapons after spending 11 years developing the technology. Race-based busing came to an end after a 25-year period in Boston, Massachusetts. 
The EU agreed to resume the exporting of British beef products, ending a three-year ban due to an outbreak of mad cow disease, which sadly isn't as hilarious as it sounds. And following a meeting in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, 68 members of the Major League Baseball Umpires Union voted to resign from the upcoming final month of the season, following a dispute over a proposed restructuring of the umpire system. The plan ultimately backfired when team owners called their bluff, accepting the resignations of just 22 members. And so, despite loading himself into a coffin in an attempt to escape Oz the last time we saw him, it's over to Augustus to bring us all up to speed. Oz. 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 The name on the street for the Oswald Maximum Security Penitentiary. Only, big news, they've changed the name. It's now called the Oswald State Correctional Facility, level four. I don't know what the difference is. Leo Glenn is still warden. Sister Peter Marie is still in psych. Tim McManus is still unit manager of Emerald City. And I know for damn sure none of us have changed. Beecher is still in the hospital after Schillinger and Keller broke his bones. Alvarez is still in solitary after blinding a CO. Adebisi, still in the loony ward after changing hats. Maybe it's truth in advertising. Maybe by getting rid of the word penitentiary, the state is finally admitting that nobody's penitent. Nobody's sorry. Nobody. So we get the opening titles that we're all used to, but there's been a slight change to them from previous series in that the show's regulars are listed first in alphabetical order, meaning that Kirk Acevedo gets top billing. So the regulars are Kirk Acevedo, Adewale, Ernie Hudson, Terry Kinney, Rita Marino, Harold Perrineau, J.K. Simmons, Lee Turgeson, Eamon Walker, and Dean Winters, while everyone else falls under an also-starring category. So essentially, you've got the core characters who've appeared in every episode, and the key recurring ones. The only exceptions are Rita Marino, who didn't appear in the Series 1 finale, and George Morfogen, who's listed with the recurring despite appearing in every episode so far. But I'd say that's probably fair, as he's been more of a background character so far, rather than having a main focus storyline. The episode itself kicks off with Augustus giving us his little update from where we left off. First and foremost being that we're no longer at the Oswald Maximum Security Penitentiary. Instead, the prison has been renamed the Oswald State Correctional Facility Level 4. And he says that he doesn't know what the difference is, and that Leo is still warden, Sister Pete is still there, and that McManus is still running MC. He also says that he knows for sure that none of the inmates have changed and mentions about Beecher still being in the hospital, Alvarez still being in solitary, and that Adebisi is still in the loony ward after changing hats. Which is a great line, and I love the idea of the hat being the source of Adebisi's power. He finishes off by saying that maybe it's truth in advertising, and that by getting rid of the word penitentiary, they're admitting that no one is penitent, that being the expression of sorrow for sin or wrongdoing. Much like the Series 2 opener, this works really well as a reminder of where everyone is at, as the show's been off the air since the end of August the previous year. Also in that time, and as I mentioned in the intro, HBO had aired the first series of The Sopranos from January to April, so this works as a way of hooking people back after 13 episodes of a new show. The production of The Sopranos does have quite a bearing on the show going forward, but I will cover that in due course. From a storyline point of view, and we'll see in a moment from the opening scene, Governor Devlin is in the midst of changing the public's perception of Oz. 
and it's quite a clever idea to change the name as the term maximum security does have a very negative connotation to it. Having it at level 4 in what I presume is a 5 level system similar to that used in California with level 5 being referred to as supermax, it also presents the image that this isn't the worst prison that there could be which could be implied with the term maximum. So we see Devlin conducting a press conference detailing what he calls an ongoing crusade to curb state spending, and that he is enacting a policy to outsource certain government services to outside contractors, more commonly known as privatisation. This is different from what are known as private prisons, sometimes referred to as for-profit prisons, which first occurred in the US in the 1980s and coincided with the rising prison population of the time with around 600,000 inmates in 1980 rising to a little over 2 million at the end of 1999, and peaking at 2.4 million in 2010. If you're a fan of Orange is the New Black on Netflix, you'll be aware of this kind of practice as the show ran a storyline covering this in its third season, and as of 2018, around 8.4% of US prisoners are housed in private prisons. However, Devlin is bringing somebody in to oversee the medical operations rather than turning over complete control of Oz, and that is going to be handled by the Weigert Corporation who are based in Germany. While seemingly not named after anyone specifically, there is a German-based Dr. Weigert Systematic Hygiene Company who were formed in 1912 and manufacture a laundry bleach. Devlin claims that by bringing in Weigert, this will equate to a saving of $28 million to the taxpayer, but assures that cutting costs will not mean a cutting quality. We get a shot of the inmates watching the conference on TV, and someone from the back shouts out, FUCK YOU! at the claims, although I couldn't tell who it actually was. Devlin introduces Dr. Frederick Garvey, who is heading the Weigert team, and he is played by Milo O'Shea. Born June 2nd, 1926, in the then-named Irish Free State, Ireland changing its name in 1937 after passing its own constitution, Milo was taught by the Christian Brothers at Dublin Sin Street School, attending at the same time as fellow actors Donald Donnelly and Eamon Andrews. His father, Con O'Shea, was an actor and also part of the singing duo Light and Shade, while his mother was an accomplished harpist and ballet dancer. At the age of 12, Milo appeared in a production of George Bernard Shaw's Caesar and Cleopatra at Dublin's Gate Theatre, where he later became a director, as well as running his own acting company, The Vico Players. Being bilingual, Milo often performed on stage in both English and in Irish, most often at the Abbey Theatre Company, and also studied music and drama at London's Guildhall School. Starting his on-screen career with uncredited roles as an air raid warden in 1940's Blackout, as well as a 1946 adaptation of Great Expectations where he played a condemned criminal, Milo rose to fame in the 1960s with credits for Z Cars on the BBC and several appearances on ITV's Play of the Week. 1968 was a formative year for Milo, with appearances in the pilot for the BBC sitcom Me Mammy, which went to series the following year, as well as acting on the Broadway stage in the Barry Morse-directed Staircase, which ran for a total of 73 performances at the Baltimore Theatre and earned Milo a Tony Award nomination. That same year, Milo was nominated for a BAFTA Film Award in the Most Promising Newcomer to Leading Film Roles category for his appearance as Leopold Bloom in Ulysses. Other notable film roles that year include appearances as Friar Lawrence in Franco Zaffarelli's adaptation of Romeo and Juliet, and as Dr. Duran Durand in cult classic Barbarella, a role he would reprise in 1985 in Duran Duran's concert film Arena, An Absurd Notion, the band having taken its name from the character when forming in 1978. Milo's first attempt at breaking into America was unsuccessful despite being a Tony Award-nominated actor, 
and should have really been a warning when he and his then-wife Maureen were involved in a plane crash en route to the US, landing in Iceland and having to wait five days for plane repairs. Once safely in the States, the couple joined the touring players of Mexico and Florida, as well as performing summer stock at the Delice Theatre on Block Island. And when between jobs, Milo would operate the elevator at the Waldorf Astoria in New York City. Returning to Ireland, Milo and Maureen gained fame on radio with the imaginatively titled show Maureen and Milo, as well as What Are They Talking About, and returned to the stage in a production of Ulysses, reprising his role as Leopold Bloom. Returning to the US in the 1980s, Milo had better success with roles in 1982's The Verdict, starring alongside Paul Newman and Charlotte Rampling, as well as receiving his second Tony Award nomination for Best Actor for his role in the play Mass Appeal. Milo also appeared on a number of US TV sitcoms, such as The Golden Girls in 1987, Cheers in 1992 as part of their 10th season finale, and in 1995 appeared in Frasier during the show's third season in the episode Shrink Wrap, making Milo another member of the Elves cast to appear on the show, which I think is up to five now? I'll have to double check. In 1998, he made an appearance on ABC's Spin City, as well as the TV movie Swing Vote playing the part of Justice Harlan Green before appearing here on Oz. Unlike previous guest stars, this character does stick around for a little bit, so I'll talk more about Milo's post-Oz career in a future episode. So Devlin hands things over to Garvey, who gives the kind of speech you would expect from a guy in a suit, and he says that they are committed to giving the best care to the 36,000 serving in the state. So this isn't just something that is affecting the inmates in Oz, Devlin has rolled this out statewide. He says that Weigert are looking to bring on the best talent available, and while he can't guarantee everyone a job, he does hope to keep as many staff as possible, as we see Gloria listening from the back of the room, who doesn't take kindly to the fact that her job appears to be on the line as the scene closes. The scene is cut together using flashbulbs from the photographers at the conference, which was an interesting technique to cover any cuts from multiple takes, but there are a couple which seem a bit dodgy. We cut to Miguel waking up in solitary confinement as Augustus narrates about Alexis de Tocqueville visiting America in 1831 to study the US penal system, as it was considered to be the ideal at the time. We also see Miguel taking a piss and then sitting down on the bed to put his clothes on getting ready for the day ahead, which looks like it's going to consist of staring at the same four walls he's been looking at for however long now. He seems completely dejected as he puts his shirt on and then just lays back down on his bed. Augustus here talking about how a spell in solitary allows for quiet reflection harkens back to what he was saying back in the debut episode about how the routine will kill you and how do you fill day after dull ass day. That could just be a coincidence, but if not, then that is some really solid writing and really good forward planning. Cut back to Garvey and Gloria arguing about Miguel's medication, which is currently 200mg of Zoloft which is the brand name of Sertraline, an antidepressant used to treat major depressive disorder, as well as obsessive-compulsive disorder, panic disorder, post-traumatic stress disorder, premenstrual dysmorphic disorder, and social anxiety disorder. It was first made available in the US in 1991, and is readily available to this day. With over 37 million prescriptions in 2016, it was the most prescribed psychiatric medication in the US, ahead of Xanax, Prozac, and Adderall. Gloria explains about Miguel's history of depression and suicidal tendencies, but Gave sees Zoloft as just being a waste of money, which, considering that it has a wholesale price of around $1.50 per month, is a load of shit. He says that Miguel is in solitary, most likely for the rest of his life, and asks what's the point in stuffing pills down his throat, and that Miguel is no danger to anybody, Gloria rightly saying, other than to himself, 
and tries to make a case for keeping Miguel on the meds. But Garvey says that as of tomorrow, Miguel is off the antidepressants. So he isn't even going to gradually wean Miguel off of a very strong medication. He's making him go cold turkey, which could have massive consequences for Miguel, and it shows just how out of touch Garvey is with the bigger picture and the damage that his actions could have. Obviously, Devlin has brought him in to steady the ship and bring costs down, seemingly by any means. But it's a bit of a masterstroke on his part, as it would absolve him and the government of any responsibility should the worst happen to Miguel. Gloria, along with Sister Pete, go to see Leo about stepping in. But he says that his hands are tied, as it is stipulated that Weigert has complete control. Pete asks him if he can call somebody, maybe even the president of the company. But Leo explains that Weigert is a subsidiary of Medmore, which is real in the Oz universe, but isn't real, although there is a Medmore farmer based in India, and that that is owned by a large German conglomerate, but sadly, mine German is not too good. To which I say to you, it's never too late to learn, Leo, or as they would say in Deutschland, Zum Lernen ist es nie zu spät, Leo. Pete asks, so that's it, we just let Miguel sink into depression, and Leo just shrugs and holds his hands up, which, considering his history with Miguel, isn't too surprising. And Gloria leaves the room with a tray of meds, saying she'd better get them to Miguel while she still can, as Leo gives a sarcastic, yeah, you better hurry. I've had plenty of time for Leo on the show so far, but he does come across as a bit of a dick in this scene. We know he and Miguel have history, and there was that time that Leo was vindictive towards Miguel when his family was visiting, but he's always ended up being the bigger man and doing the right thing in the end. Here, however, he seems to be taking a tremendous amount of joy in the thought of Miguel's suffering. Or maybe he's just basking in the knowledge that he doesn't have to worry about the medical side of things anymore, almost like a weight's been lifted off his shoulders. His stylish new beard also acts as a reflection of his newfound attitude, and much like the start of the last series, we see a number of characters sporting either new or altered looks. Gloria heads to solitary to break the news to Miguel about his medication. Listen, Miguel. I want to explain something to you. These pills that I've been giving you, to make you feel better, to calm you down, well, I'm not going to bring them anymore. Yeah, you're not going to come see me? No. <laughs> not as often. My grandpa told me this. What do you mean? Yeah, I, he told me yesterday you weren't going to come visit me no more. Your grandfather? Uh-huh. Yesterday. Miguel, your grandfather's dead. Don't go. I have other patients. Miguel. You know, I, um... I liked working in the ward as an orderly. Gloria heads out and we see Miguel flush his medication down the toilet. 
and he's presumably been doing this for some time due to this hallucination about his grandfather visiting him. According to the NHS, hallucinations can occur during withdrawal from alcohol or drugs if you suddenly stop taking them. So Miguel being made to go cold turkey like how Garvey wants, he seemed destined to be in this state we see him in here. However, hallucinations can also occur due to sleep deprivation or may even be caused by mental illness such as delirium, which is a change in the brain that can cause mental confusion and emotional disruption, schizophrenia in which a person suffers a breakdown in the relation between thought, emotion and behaviour, with around 70% of people with the illness getting visual hallucinations, or a form of dementia such as Alzheimer's disease, which of course happened to Miguel's grandfather Ricardo back in series 1. All of this links into Miguel's fears of ending up just like his grandfather that we've seen on the show, which seemed to really ramp up once he went into solitary. If we skip forward for just a moment and factor in Beach's recovery from his broken limbs, Miguel has been in solitary for between 3 and 6 months at this point, which in and of itself would have quite the impact on a person mentally even without being on medication, but depending on how long he's been flushing his meds will have only exacerbated things further. Gloria goes to talk with Ray, who is also sporting a new haircut this series, having grown it out since last time. I'll be honest, it's not his best look, I think I preferred the shorter cut from series 2. She tells Ray about Miguel's apparent visit from his grandfather and mentions that Sister Pete will continue to monitor him, but says that due to Miguel and Ray having a special relationship, she felt that Ray should know. Ray thanks her and says that he's heading up to solitary soon to distribute Holy Communion, but Miguel mentions about how she's known hundreds of Barrio boys like Miguel end up in a similar way. Barrio boy could be a reference to Ernesto Galazar's 1971 novel of the same name, which tells the story of a boy who moves from Mexico to the US and his coming of age amid difficult conditions as well as political and social strife. She mentions to Ray that she isn't sure how much longer she can do this, so Gloria herself seems to be having somewhat of a crisis of faith, not only due to the pressures of the job itself, and by the way, big shout out to any of you listening that may be doctors or nurses or in any other medical occupation. You do great work in very difficult circumstances. But also with her job being in the balance and her disagreement with Garvey earlier, she's obviously feeling the pressure. We cut back to solitary where Ray meets up with Miguel to give him communion. Miguel says that he can't take communion because in order to do so, he needs to confess, which he says he can't do. Ray asks him why, and Miguel looks over to the door where a CO is watching over proceedings, which is understandable considering that Miguel took Ray hostage last time out. But Ray asks for them to be left alone, which says a lot about Ray considering how Miguel treated him during the riot, and as I mentioned a second ago, took him hostage when on the verge of a psychotic break. The CO leaves and Ray says that whatever Miguel tells him is between himself and God. And Miguel says that it's the same thing over and over about how explaining how he cut Rivera's eyes out and how he needs to tell them who else was involved and that he won't do it. Ray asking whether it's won't or can't. Miguel compares Ray's vows in the priesthood to those that he took to be in the El Norte gang as Ray sits down beside Miguel and tells him that he came to visit Miguel's grandfather in this cell. Or maybe it was the next one. But Miguel is quick to say that they're in the same one and that Ricardo is still there. Ray mentions that he used to talk to Ricardo about Miguel and Maritza having their baby, and asked Miguel about how upset he was when the baby passed away, but Miguel seems more focused on the communion wafers and asks Ray to pass them over. Ray says that he can't just give them out, but Miguel leaps over and stuffs a load of them in his mouth. Ray gets up to try and stop him, but Miguel retreats to a corner and says, please don't hurt me, which is interesting that he would think that about Ray. That's not to say that Ray isn't tough, you have to be to work in a prison every day. 
but he clearly hasn't got a malicious bone in his body. Ray asks why Miguel did that and quietly asks what's going on, but Miguel says that he won't tell unless Ray makes this into a confessional, which Ray agrees to. Miguel then explains that because of what happened to Rivera, all the other COs are forgetting to feed him and that he only manages to eat maybe twice a week, and he picks up a water jug with a suspiciously yellow liquid in it. More on that in a moment. Ray starts to say that Miguel has to tell someone, but Miguel says that Ray has promised not to say anything to anyone, and that he also hasn't been getting any water, so he's had to resort to either drinking water from the toilet bowl, or his own urine, and then takes a big swig from his water jug, as the shot goes into a slight slow motion to emphasise the point as we fade to black. And I just want to say about these two scenes with Miguel and Gloria and Miguel and Ray, they seem really dark. Not dark in terms of tone or representing Miguel's mindset, they just seem really dark in how they're lit. I don't know if that's a stylistic choice or if it's just the way that the DVD has been mastered, but it really sticks out from the rest of the episode. Much like with him not taking his medication, Miguel drinking his own urine and the damage that is doing to him depends on how long it's been going on. Drinking your own urine, known as the practice of urophagia, is not advisable, which really shouldn't be a shock to anyone. While urine is approximately 95% water and is sterile, it's full of all the stuff that your kidneys are attempting to excrete, so putting that back into your body can damage your stomach as well as your kidneys once it gets back to that part of your system. In an extreme survival situation, you could maybe drink your own urine once as a last resort, but certainly not long term. Rather worryingly, when I put this into Google, in the People Also Asked section were the questions, how much urine should I drink a day? Well, none, obviously. And can I drink my partner's urine? Which, if it's not advisable to drink your own, I can't imagine it's advisable to consume anyone else's. I didn't even look at the answer for can you drink your own urine if you boil it. Anyway, that's enough of talking about piss for one day, as we go to M-City for the first time this series. And the CEO seems to be in the middle of a game of toss the keys around as the count is taking place. Saeed is being led through by officers on his way to meet some new inmates, who are getting the familiar routine speech from Metzger who delivers it much quicker and angrier than Diane ever did. In Emerald City, you will follow the routine. We will tell you when to sleep, when to eat, when to work, when to shit. You will follow the rules. No yelling, no fighting, no fucking. So the new inmates get their sponsors, Saeed being the one for Hamid Khan, El Cid gets paired up with Carlo Ricardo, and Kenny has Malcolm Coyle. Carlo Ricardo is played by Juan Carlos Hernandez, which has to be the most stereotypical Latino name in existence, and he is a rarity in us in that he never receives a crime flashback. While Hamid Khan is played by Ernie Hudson Jr., who is obviously the real-life son of Ernie Hudson. I'll talk more about Juan later on and Ernie Hudson Jr. in a future episode, but we do get the crime flashback of Malcolm Coyle, who we see running out of a sporting goods store carrying a set of golf clubs, but he and an associate run out just as some police are passing by. His partner in crime takes a bullet while Coyle throws his hands up in surrender, and is convicted of grand larceny, armed robbery, assault with a deadly weapon, and assault of a police officer, so presumably he fought back against the two officers, but we didn't see that, and is sentenced to 50 years, up for parole in 20. Malcolm Coyle is played by American rapper Treach, real name Anthony Chris. Born December 2nd, 1970 in East Orange, New Jersey, Treach is best known as a member of the hip-hop group Naughty by Nature, who you might remember I mentioned back in Outside Oz 3, City on a Hill. 
On the group's earlier material, Treach was often the sole vocalist, and at the time of broadcast, had released five albums, one as The New Style, and four as Naughty by Nature. The most recent, 1999, Nature's Fury, having been released in April. He's also the brother of Diesel from the rap group Rotten Rascals, and featured on two Rotten Rascals tracks, Batter Up and Life of Bastard in 1995. In addition to those appearances, Treach also featured on a number of tracks throughout the early to mid-90s by artists such as Queen Latifah, Tupac, Boys to Men, the naughty remix of Michael and Janet Jackson's Scream, Aaliyah, Monica, and M.O.P. On April 2nd, 1999, after dating on and off for several years, Treach married Sandra Denton, the Pepper from Salt and Pepper, in a tattoo parlour in Kansas City, Missouri while an official ceremony was held in Morristown, New Jersey on July 24th, 1999, shortly after this episode aired. Apart from appearing in music videos, Treach had limited acting experience at the time, having only one credit to his name, that being the part of Tyrone in the TV movie First Time Felon, broadcast on HBO in 1997 and starring Omar Epps and Delroy Lindo before appearing here on Oz. So Kenny introduces Malcolm to the rest of his group, and Malcolm says to call him Snake which I'm not going to do because it's a shit nickname. Poet introduces himself by his given name, Arnold Jackson, saying that he doesn't go by Poet since returning to Oz, but for ease and continuity, I'm going to continue to refer to him as Poet. Malcolm, when he hears the name Arnold, asks whether or not Junior is to be referred to as Willis. Arnold Jackson was the character played by Gary Coleman on different strokes, I'm sure it's nothing more than a coincidence that both characters have the same name and are not part of the same universe, but it would be interesting to read some sort of fanfiction where different strokes Arnold has gone off the rails as he grew up and was in fact poet. Malcolm tells him that he needs to get a better name than Arnold, bearing in mind that he's going around telling people to call him Snake, and then turns his attention to the TV, asking why they're watching a kid's TV show. And this is the first appearance of Miss Sally's Schoolyard on the show, which becomes a recurring bit in later seasons. Miss Sally is played by Whitney Allen, who went uncredited for most of her run as Miss Sally, and only had one previous acting credit to her name prior to this, appearing in a second season episode of Spin City. We'll see her as Miss Sally on and off over the next few series, but I think she does appear as other characters, again in uncredited roles. Malcolm finds out why the guys are such fans of Miss Sally, her tits bouncing up and down as she does some running, which gets hollers from the guys. Chucky interrupts Kenny's TV time, saying that Napa wants to speak with him, and we cut to Napa having a shave in the bathroom. He greets Kenny, who reminds him that he wants to be known as Bricks, which, as you'll recall, Kenny tried to introduce back in Series 1, and much like Snake, doesn't seem to be a name that's ever going to catch on. Kenny gives Napa some shit about his nickname, and Chucky tells Kenny to show some respect, but Napa tells him it's okay, and that as their business partners, they don't stand on formality. He tells Kenny that from tomorrow, everyone is going to get healthy, but he doesn't want Malcolm to know too much about their operation. And he refers to Malcolm as Snake. I've no idea how he knows that, as he hasn't met him yet. Kenny vouches for Malcolm, saying that he seems alright, but Napa tells him that seems isn't good enough, and tells Kenny to put Malcolm to the test to make sure that he isn't undercover. The Italians, of course, nearly got stung back in the first series, with Markstrom working undercover, and with Napa now in charge, he doesn't want to make the same mistakes that Nino nearly did. Kenny asks him what sort of test he wants him to do, and Napa says to do it like they do on the corner. Cut to the gym where Kenny and what seems to be 11 other inmates put in the boots to Malcolm, who's curled up in a ball on the floor with his face covered in blood. They step away as Kenny grabs him and brings him to his feet and embraces him, signifying Malcolm's induction into the group. 
They take Malcolm off to the infirmary, Kenny passing Napper on the way, telling him that Malcolm is legit, as we close out Act 1. Tell him nothing until we're sure he's not undercover. How you want to be sure of that? Oh, put him to a test. Test? What you want me to do? On the corner, don't you have some way to measure a fella's loyalty? Yeah, we got something like that. What the hell? Fuck this nigga, yo! kicks off with Augustus monologuing about jailhouse confessions and half-truths, asking why they're not called half-lies, as we see Adebisi in the psych ward coming to the aid of Shabetta, who's been cornered by another patient who's rubbing what looks like ketchup and some mustard onto Shabetta's face. He pushes them away from Shabetta and proceeds to wash it away, saying that Shabetta used to be so clean and neat. I will say that, while maybe not the most comfortable place for a person to be mentally, Everyone in the psych ward seems to spend their day in their pyjamas, which has got to be so relaxing. Chucky is recounting this to Napa, having heard it from one of the guards, Tapiro, who is presumably on the Italian's payroll in some form. Chucky can't seem to get his head around Adebisi being a changed man, and Napa doesn't seem too sure himself. Chucky also has the info that Adebisi is set to be released back to M-City quite soon, which Napa thinks could be useful. Sister Pete meets with Adebisi and tells him that she is releasing him from the psych ward, Adebisi asking if she really thinks that he's ready, and she tells him that over the last month she's been reducing his Xanax dosage, and he's shown no violent behaviour. McManus, who's apparently been sat in on the meeting, asks whether or not Adebisi should be put back in M-City. McManus seems to appear out of nowhere, and we've seen that a couple of times on the show, and it can be quite jarring. You're like, ah, fuck, where did he come from? Perhaps opening the scene with an establishing shot of the three of them would have solved this, but that's a minor nitpick. Adebisi says that he hopes that McManus will send him back to MC, but if he decides not to, then he understands, due to the trouble he's caused. McManus reminds him that there are a lot of people in MC who are holding grudges, but Adebisi says that he is going to apologise to everyone that he has hurt, starting with McManus himself. McManus accepts his apology, but much like Napper, he seems unsure about whether or not he's buying Adebisi's change of heart. We've seen this from McManus before with Saeed in the aftermath of the riot, and while he's not going to forget what's happened, he seems willing to bury the hatchet and let the past be the past. Whether that's another example of naivety from McManus or not remains to be seen. So Adebisi arrives back in M-City, and he's getting some questionable comments from some of the inmates. He heads over to Napa, who's in the middle of having his hair cut, and like we've seen before, I'm questioning the thought process of allowing someone in the cell block that houses the most hardened offenders to have a pair of metal scissors on them. Adebisi tells Napa that he thought the road to salvation was through Africa, but that it's backward, diseased, and corrupt, and that by killing Jara, Napa saved Adebisi's life, and he thanks Napa for doing so. Napa doesn't say anything in response, instead just giving a nod of acknowledgement as Adebisi asks if he can work in the kitchen once again. And he even says please at the end, which you would have never have got out of the old Adebisi. Napa takes a second to think about it and says okay, but that he has an arrangement with Kenny now and that he doesn't want Adebisi selling tits. 
Arabizi says that he is done with the drugs and shuffles off quietly. Interesting to note in the background, Saeed has been watching over things from the first floor balcony since Arabizi arrived back. He's never in focus, so the attention is never put on him, but you can take this as Saeed being constantly switched on and keeping an eye on the comings and goings in M-City, always aware of where his allies and his enemies are. Kenny comes over to talk with Napper and he asks what the fuck is going on with Adebisi, asking if Napper actually believes that Adebisi has changed. Napper tells him, maybe I do, maybe I don't. It's really well played for him as even though he has this arrangement with Kenny and his group, Napper is still very much the man in control. He's really turned things around for the Italians since coming to Oz. Kenny thinks that Adebisi is setting them up and says that he's going to kill him at the first opportunity but Napa tells him that Kenny doesn't touch Adebisi unless he says so. Kenny tells him, bullshit, fuck what you say, which is a very dangerous move, but Napa keeps his cool and tells Kenny to take a walk, which he does begrudgingly. We saw this a little bit at the end of the previous series where Kenny, despite being the leader of his group, seems to rush into things without thinking them through, unlike Napa who is prepared to take his time and see the bigger picture. Chucky asks Nappa why not just let the homeboys kill Adebisi, and there will be no skin off of them. Nappa calls Kenny cocky and says that if Adebisi's change of heart is real, then he could be worth more to them alive than dead. Cut to the kitchen where Adebisi is starting work, and Ryan comes over and asks him what he's up to. Adebisi tells him nothing, but Ryan says, hey, this is me you're talking to, asking if he's seriously not going to get revenge on Kenny and the Italians. Adebisi picks up some cans and tells him no as he goes to walk off but he runs into Kenny and Malcolm. Kenny tells him to watch where he's going, as Adebisi politely asks for them to excuse him. Malcolm says that Adebisi doesn't look so tough, as the shot focuses on Adebisi looking into the camera, and we get a flashback of Kenny killing Jara. Chucky tells Adebisi to get a move on, the scene closing with Adebisi being the obedient worker, whistling as he leaves, and we fade to black. It looks so fucking tough to me. Down in reception, we meet a new face, Clayton Hughes, who asks Officer Breesy about the name change. He says that his father used to work at Oz, and says that maybe Breesy knew him. He tells him that his father was Samuel Hughes, and Breesy says, Oh, Sammy Hughes, sure, and then asks if he's Sammy's kid, seemingly forgetting that Clayton literally told him that Sam was his father about five seconds ago. He says that Sam is still missed, and Clayton gives somewhat of an awkward thank you. Breesy asks what's brought Clayton to Oz, and he says that he's come to see Leo, quickly correcting himself saying the warden, about applying for a job. So there's obviously some sort of connection between Clayton's family and Leo. Cut to Leo forcibly saying, no, absolutely not. It's a really good transition from one scene to the other. Clayton asks him why not, he's completed CO training and came second in his class. Maybe that's why he's saying no Clayton, maybe he wants who came top of the class. Leo asks if Clayton's mother knows about this, and Clayton says that he's come to Leo first because he wants to surprise his mum. Leo laughs and says, you're going to do that alright, you're going to give her heart failure. Two really good comic moments from Leo, he's been on top form in this episode so far. Clayton says that after his dad died, Leo was always there for him, and asks for him to be there for him now. 
Him coming to Leo to ask about this first, coupled with their apparent family past, you see straight from the off that Clayton clearly has a lot of respect and admiration for Leo. Leo asks him when the hell did he grow up, saying that the last time he saw Clayton, he was seven years old. He settles things down by putting a serious voice on, and says that he promised Sam that he would watch out for Clayton. But Clayton interrupts saying that he wants to be a CEO like his dad, and like Leo, and that if Leo doesn't hire him, then another prison will, which is a bit of a dickish move and essentially backs Leo into a corner. We then cut to the cafeteria, come chapel, come whatever the hell else it needs to be at that particular time, and Leo is given his Welcome to Oz speech, much like he did in Series 2, to some more new recruits. Which does indeed include Clayton, as well as a new female officer, but I'll talk more about her in a moment. Clayton and Leo take a walk through the cafeteria, Clayton saying that Leo sounded like he's given that same speech a hundred times, before asking where he's been assigned. He assumes that he's heading to Unit B, or Solitary, or maybe even Death Row. Leo just tells him, Somewhere you'll be safe as we get another really well-timed cut of Clayton working the reception on what looks to be family visiting day, as there are a ton of people there with young children, and Clayton is struggling to keep order. He notices Leo watching on, who gives a sarcastic little wave. A couple of things that I really liked about this scene was how Leo managed to turn the situation around on Clayton after he tried to play the other prison card, and I also like that Clayton is a man who, much like us Brits, likes an orderly cue. Overall, really good introduction for the character of Clayton here, and it also gives something for Leo to do going forward, seemingly with a bit more humour involved in it too. Leo had a very heavy second series with the aftermath of the riot and the investigation that came with it, his brother turning himself in, and of course the rape of his daughter in his feud with Miguel. While that feud isn't necessarily over, because Leo still doesn't know the identity of the rapist, with Miguel now being housed in solitary confinement, it has been put on the back burner to a degree. Cut to the locker room where Diane meets up with new female recruit Claire Howell, played by Kristen Rhoda. Born February 22nd, 1964 in Bellport, New York, Rhoda graduated from the local high school before studying at the American Musical and Dramatic Society, the same school where Lee Turgeson studied, where she trained in acting and singing, and split her time between New York and Los Angeles. With only a handful of credits to her name at the time of this episode airing, it's time once again, and for the first time this series, to play Homicide or Nomicide. So, back by popular demand, and because I know you all love a little game to play at home, it's time once again to play Homicide or Nomicide. Gonna keep it nice and simple as we've a whole bunch of new faces show up in this episode and there's still more to come later on. But for this one, all you have to do is answer, did Kristen Rhoda appear in Homicide Life on the Street before appearing on Oz? Have a think about it and I will let you know the answer at the end of the show. So Diane tries to break the ice with Claire by saying, so you're the new girl, only to then be given the coldest of shoulders as Claire asks her, girl? Not the best way to endear yourself, but Diane takes it in her stride and she asks her how her first day went. Claire says it was uneventful, which Diane says can be a good thing, but Claire says that she likes a little action, and then starts to turn her attention to McManus, asking Diane if he's available. Diane says that he is as far as she knows, but Claire senses something to Diane's answer and asks whether or not she used to fuck him. And being so direct with her questions, it's safe to say that Claire isn't a shy one. 
Diane says, Yeah, I did actually. And there's an awkward silence for a moment before Diane says that if Claire needs anything to just ask. But Claire says that she can take care of herself as she leaves. Diane muttering to herself, Yeah, I'm sure you can. This is the beginning of the end for Edie Falco on the show. She is around for most of this series, but the role of Diane is greatly reduced due to her commitments on The Sopranos, where she was one of the show's main stars playing Carmela Soprano, and which, as I mentioned earlier, had aired its first season whilst Oz had been off the air, and at the time of broadcast, will have been filming its second season. While both shows were filmed in the Northeast, The Sopranos being filmed at Silver Cup Studios in New York and Oz filmed in an old biscuit factory in Manhattan, juggling both shows was always going to be difficult for Edie, and as a result we see less and less of Diane going forward. Claire heads up to see McManus and has something to ask him. Mm-hmm. Hi, Claire Howell. We met earlier. Oh, yeah, yeah, hi. Working late? No, I'm, I'm just finished, as a matter of fact. Want to have dinner? Huh? Would you like to have dinner with me? I, uh... <laughs> Don't tell me you're the kind of guy who can't handle a woman asking him out. Uh, no, 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 no. Uh, as a matter of fact, I, I uh, find it kind of ballsy. So, what do you say? There's a Romanian restaurant around the corner I've been dying to try. Romanian, huh? Well... Why not? I'll meet you in the parking lot. I absolutely love the, eh, from McManus, and the look of confusion from now being the person who is asked out rather than him being the one asking. Also, you don't tend to hear about many Romanian restaurants, but a quick Google does show about half a dozen in the Manhattan area. As for Romanian dishes, a lot of it just sounds plain nasty, if I'm totally honest, with common dishes including beef tripe soup, Salata de Buff, more commonly known as a beef salad, and looks fucking disgusting. And on several places on the list I found were different types of having cabbage, which is on a par with entering the seventh circle of hell. So I reckon it's safe to say I'm not heading down to the local Romanian place anytime soon. Augustus tells us that love is the ultimate half-truth, as we go to Carlo Ricardo waiting for a visit from his family, which includes his dad, two sisters, and a couple of brothers. I'm not going to go through who all these actors and actresses are, as the family are very much background characters. Some of them only appear for this one scene. So it would take up quite a bit of time, but as I mentioned earlier, Carlo is played by Juan Carlos Hernandez. I struggled to find much information about Juan, as, you know, I tend to start off introductions with birthdays and places of birth, but I couldn't find anything for Juan. The only sort of information I could find, and this was taken from krpinteractive.com for the Atlantic Theatre Company, was that he is a former host at New York Comedy Club and has performed at several venues in New York City. His IMDb page has a bit more information regarding his career, with his first four credits coming from Spanish-speaking projects before making his English-language debut in Tom Fontana's Firehouse from 1996, followed up with an appearance the following year in The Devil's Advocate playing the part of a paparazzi. In 1998, he landed the role of Mick Santos for three episodes of CBS soap opera Guiding Lights before appearing here on Oz the following year. So Carlo meets with his family and he notices that his mother hasn't made the trip and the family say that she couldn't come because she has the flu, which is obviously bullshit and Carlo knows it. But she's at least sent along a nice fruit basket which includes some bonus cookies as well. So, you know, every cloud and all that. One of his brothers asks him about being in that special unit while his other brother mentions about that being the one that had the riot. 
On this rewatch, I'm surprised how often the riot is actually mentioned. I honestly don't remember it being brought up this often after Series 1, and especially by such a minor character. Carlo tells them not to worry about him before tucking into a cookie and then heads back to M-City, where he meets up with El Cid and Chica, who are sat playing cards. El Cid asks if he had a good time with his family, Chico chiming in, saying that it's nice to have one. But El Cid seems indifferent, saying that he doesn't know what it's like to have a family, as he was sent to juvie when he was 9 years old, and has been in and out ever since until he was 18 when he started a 15-year stretch at Lardner, and that by the time he got out, his family were either dead, had skipped town, or they just plain didn't want anything to do with him. Carlo says that El Cid was raised by the system, and El Cid claims that he's proud of that. It was surprising to see Carlos stand up to El Cid in such a way, considering he's so fresh into M-City. We've seen previously that El Cid has such a commanding presence that Miguel just handed over control of the Latinos to him. And at this point, Chico is very much his lackey, but Carlo doesn't seem to have any fear of El Cid. Augustus narrates with the I swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth that is pledged when you take the witness stand. I covered swearing on the Bible in a previous episode, but the origins of this oath are believed to trace back to the days of the Romans. One particular urban legend states that Romans had to squeeze their testicles while vowing to tell the truth, and is perhaps why the Latin for truth is testis. However, scholars of Latin have debunked this theory, pointing out that testis more likely comes from the ancient Greek for three, in that a witness acts as a third observer to an event, the first two being those involved in the act on trial. The Roman statesman and philosopher Cicero also alluded to the importance of the oath in De Officis, while the Law of the Twelve Tablets, the earliest record of Roman law, states that perjurers shall be hurled down from the Tarpian Rock, a steep cliff at the southern summit of Capitolone Hill, overlooking the Forum in Rome. My wife and I honeymooned in Rome and passed the Tarpian Rock many times, but it's actually quite easy to miss as the locals don't tend to draw attention to it. With this narration, we also go down to the mailroom where Jazz Hoyt is reading through some letters, one of which he seems to take a particular interest in, shoving it into his jeans. Schillinger asks him, hey, what you got there? But Jazz denies it and tells Schillinger to get glasses. You'll remember right at the end of the last series when Jazz came in that Schillinger was showing him the ropes in the mailroom, and mentioned about how they're constantly monitored and searched by the guards, so if they're going to pull any scams, they need to pick their moments. Schillinger tells Jazz that if he wants to start pulling scams behind his back, that he'll get Jazz transferred out faster than he can spit. Jazz then hurls a massive gob of spit on the floor in a show of defiance, and he really does hock that thing. It's fucking gross. While Schillinger has been set up as one of the main villains on the show, it's hard not to admire him in certain ways, in that he's managed to land this job in the mailroom that gives himself quite a bit of power, essentially controlling everything coming into the prison. Him confronting Jazz as well, it's not so much that a scam is being run, it's just that he isn't getting a piece of the action. The scene closes with Schillinger giving him a look of, alright, if that's the way you want to play things, before we then go to a flashback of Schillinger raping Cyril, the shot being from Cyril's point of view, as he then awakens from the nightmare, calling out to Ryan, who jumps down from his bunk and comforts him, saying that everything's going to be alright. He asks Cyril about having the dream again, and you're left wondering how many times Cyril has had this dream in the time between series. Dissolved to the cafeteria and the O'Reilly's are dishing out lunch to the inmates. We don't see many dissolve shots on the show, it tends to just do straight cutting and fades to black to break things up. 
One of the Aryans in the food queue holds out his tray for Ryan to put some chicken nuggets on, but Ryan just waves him along as if to say, nah, fuck off, that was really funny. Schillinger is next in line and gives a long look to Cyril before holding out his tray to Ryan, who actually says fuck off this time. But Schillinger tells him that it's his job to serve him, which angers Ryan who throws his tongs down and storms off. He heads to the pantry and knocks a load of trays all over the place, and a few rain down on Poet, who's in there peeling potatoes. The trays are different to the ones used in other scenes, as they seem to float down around Poet and also sound kind of flimsy, almost like they're made of foam. So they're probably prop trays so that Craig didn't take a load full force to the head. Poet looks around and sees that Ryan's outburst is to do with Schillinger, and makes a comment about Schillinger porking his brother, which, as you can imagine, goes down really well with Ryan but in all fairness, was pretty funny. Poet then asks why doesn't Ryan throw ground glass into Schillinger's food like he did to Nina, but Ryan says that it was Adebisi that killed Nina, Poet giving him a, yeah, whatever, mate. Interesting to speculate how many of the inmates actually know about Ryan's scheme to kill Nina. Poet and Adebisi, while not exactly best mates, were acquainted due to their drug taking, and it's possible that Adebisi, while in a hazy state of mind, might have let slip about putting glass into Nino's food. Ryan says that he'd love to take Schillinger out, which I've just realised makes it sound like he wants to take him on a date. But he's always got someone around him, whether that's the Aryans or the bikers, which leads to Poet suggesting about getting one of them to do it for him. Ryan jokes about Poet thinking like him, which Poet says is a scary thought. Back in M-City, Ryan visits with Jazz, who is applying a prison tattoo to one of his biker buddies. Probably best not to ask what Jazz is using for the ink in this tattoo, but he seems to be using a bedspring for the needle, which could also lead to all sorts of problems. Ryan says that he needs an ask, but Jazz says that he doesn't do them. Ryan then suggests a tits-for-tat trade, and Jazz is a lot more open to the idea. It doesn't seem to take a whole lot of encouragement to sway Jazz. Ryan says that Jazz will get into a lot of shit with Schillinger, Jazz saying fuck Schillinger, so the alliance between the bikers and the Aryans might not be as strong as first thought. Ryan says that he's got a package coming in through the mail, and he needs Jazz to let it slide through the x-ray. Jazz says that it's no problem, and when Ryan asks if he wants to know what it is, Jazz says that it's Ryan's business, and that he'll know when he scans the box. Ryan and Cyril take a walk through the gym, with Ryan telling his brother that he's cleared it with Jazz but he's within earshot of the Aryan from the cafeteria who gives a look, probably planning his revenge for not getting his chicken nuggets. Back in the mailroom and Jazz is sat at the monitor of the x-ray machine, and sees a package with what is definitely a pair of brass knuckles inside. Brass knuckles are illegal in most countries, but can be imported to places such as Australia so long as a government permit is obtained, while in Sweden they are legal to purchase and own so long as you're over 21, but cannot be sold or carried in public. Italy and Mexico have similar laws, but the age is 18, and similar laws apply in the US, but also vary from state to state, while in Brazil they're totally legal and freely sold. Jazz brings the package out of the scanner and sees Ryan's name on the box, and if you ever wanted to send anything to Oz, you seemingly can by using the address 1971-372, Oswald Correctional Facility, Oswald, some sort of scribble, 10732. Presumably there is only one Oswald in the entire United States, because that is not a complete address, and how it managed to get there is a minor miracle. Schillinger is keeping a close eye on Jazz. When he throws the package into the cleared mail, Schillinger has a word with Officer Mustache, who takes Jazz, along with Ryan, for a chat with McManus. Brass knuckles? Yeah, they're a birthday gift from my aunt. 
I didn't ask her to send him. She's a fucking nut job. Right, right. And Hoyt, when you saw these come up on the screen, why didn't you tell the CO? Didn't see him. You didn't see him? I imagine sitting there looking at the screen all day, your vision gets kind of blurry. Yeah, blurry. Well, good news then. I'm changing your work assignment. You're out of the mailroom and up making ladies' dresses. And O'Reilly. Yeah. Tell your aunt. Next birthday. Socks. So Mamanis dismisses them taking away their gym privileges for a week, which even Ryan points out is them getting off pretty easy for what is bringing a deadly weapon into a high-level prison. Ryan tells Jazz that it's no thanks to Schillinger and that Jazz needs to teach him a lesson. Cut to the gym where Schillinger and the Aryan who I'm now going to refer to as Nuggets are doing some boxing training. Jazz creeps up on them with a shank and swipes at Schillinger, but is grabbed from behind by another inmate but one of the bikers runs in and continues to attack Schillinger, who hits a textbook body kick on him. Jazz manages to break free and tries to get at Schillinger again, but this time the guards run in and Jazz is led away as the saw enter and press Schillinger up against the wall. Schillinger rightly puts his hands up in surrender and you can't really blame him for doing so. It also makes him look the innocent party, seemingly the victim of a random attack by Jazz. It's a smart move on his part, and I just want to point out how good a shape J.K. Simmons has gotten himself into since the start of the show. He and a number of other cast members got themselves into really good shape after series one, some saying they did so in case they had to be naked for a scene, but J.K. in particular looks like a different person, all credit to him. Jazz is thrown into the hole, with little Jazz flapping all over the place as the door is closed. He bangs on the door and it was here that I realised Evan Seinfeld says the word motherfucker the exact same way as he does in Biohazard songs. Open this fucking door, motherfucker! Sending Jazz to the hull also acts as a logical way for Evan Seinfeld to have an absence from the show, as in late 1998 and early 1999, Biohazard were finishing recording their new album, New World Disorder, and were also playing some tour dates, so they needed to come up with a way to write Jazz out of the show, and sending him to the hull was the easiest explanation. Back in M-City, Keller breaks the news to Ryan about Schillinger getting attacked in the gym, as the rest of the inmates watch Miss Sally to close out Act 2. O'Reilly, you hear what happened in the gym? No. Bikers attacked Schillinger. Is he dead? Escaped without a scratch. God damn it! Fuck! Want some pretzels? Act 3 then, and we're down at death row, and Richie Hanlon's back! We've not seen him since the middle of series 2, when he was pressured into making his fake confession to the murder of Alexander Vogel. Him being down in death row also means that Shirley finally has some company, and with them being the only man and woman around, she makes the comparison to them being like Adam and Eve, but Richie doesn't think it resembles the Garden of Eden. Also known as Paradise, the Garden of Eden is mentioned in the books Genesis and Ezekiel in the Bible. Genesis referring to the Garden of God, with Ezekiel mentioning the trees. The books of Zechariah and Psalms also refer to the trees and the water, but don't mention Eden specifically. While considered to be mythological by most, there have been suggestions that the location of the garden could be in Iran, as suggested by the British archaeologist David Roll, as well as the Persian Gulf, the Armenian Highlands or Armenian Plateau, or in Iraq where the Tigris and the Euphrates rivers run into the sea. Shirley asks Richie who he killed, as that's a fair assumption as to why he's ended up on death row. He tells her no one, which, yeah, 
suppose so, but you could make an argument that he did kill Freaky, although that was an accident. Shirley claims she hasn't killed anyone either, so she's sticking to her story about her daughter drowning being an accident as well, which she mentions here. She says to Richie that he's appealing, which he looks confused at, and she clarifies that she means his verdict, and he's all, oh right, yeah, that's some good wordplay, and he asks her about her appeal, which is coming up next week, and she thinks that the judge might overturn her conviction on a technicality, but she doesn't go into details. She rather bluntly asks for Richie to show her his dick, and in return she'll show him her vagina. Richie isn't going for it though, telling her that he's gay, and Shirley says, I don't care if you're Portuguese, which I've got no idea what the hell that's supposed to mean. Is that a saying? And says that she doesn't want to die having never seen another dick. I mean, she did see Adam Easy's dick at the end of the second series, but then again I suppose there has been a passage of time since. After a bit more persuasion, Richie undoes his trousers, whips his dick out and shows it to Shirley. She asks him to stick it through the bars so she can get a good look at it, which Richie seems to take as a slight of him having a small one at first. But he does and she says that he must have made some boy very, very happy as she looks impressed. The pair of them laugh as the scene closes and we'll have to take Shirley's word for it regarding Richie's length as we never see it on camera. Obviously we do see different members of the cast in various stages of nudity throughout the show, some of which have no issue with getting naked on camera, while some actors will even have no nudity clauses in their contracts. We go back to M-City where the Muslims, along with new member Hamid Khan, are discussing about how black men are perceived by white Americans, and how they are six times more likely to be sent to prison for the same crime. Saeed tells them that the most important battle is to strive for purity inside, and with Hamid being new to the group, says that it is essential that he understands that violence is only to be used in extreme circumstances, as we get a flashback to the riot and where Saeed shot into the air. During this rewatch, and as I mentioned earlier in the scene with Carlo's family, I'm finding that I completely underestimated how much the riot was mentioned after the first series and the start of series 2. For some reason, I had it in my head that it was over and done with quite early on, but we've already had two mentions of it in this series 3 opener so far. Hamid says that he has read Saeed's books and understands that Saeed is resolved to overthrow the system, with Saeed saying that his aim is to do so by using the system against itself which I think was the point that Hamid was going to make had Saeed not interrupted him. We get more flashbacks, one of which being Jackson Verhu being pelted by the saw as Saeed mentions about the riot's eight deaths and 20 other injuries, and how Devlin was absolved of any responsibility. So a quick reminder thrown in there of what happened at the start of series two so that the next part of this plot can be put into motion, without going over everything again in intricate detail. Some solid storytelling right there, unlike some that I saw on The Walking Dead before I gave up on that. There was a bit where Rick Grimes says to somebody, Oh my god, it's you! And I had no idea who it was, and we were left going, Who? Who the fuck is it? Turns out it was some guy from the first series that hadn't been mentioned for about seven years. But you only found that out if you read up about it online. Which if you have to do, that means the show did a poor job. Anyway, Saeed says that he has, in secret been contacting family members of those killed with the intention of bringing a class action suit against Devlin and his administration, Arif telling Hamid that they're hopeful that a judge rules in their favour. Arif has been solidified as Saeed's second in command, which was mentioned at the end of the second series, but we see it much more on screen from this point. Hamid asks if Saeed will be serving as the lawyer, Saeed saying that he will, which with his track record probably isn't the best of ideas, but he will be doing so alongside Arnold Zellman who he describes as one of the top litigators in the country, 
so at least he'll have a professional pointing him in the right direction this time. Amid asks him, a Jew? And Saeed looks at him disgusted and tells him to rein that shit in straight away. And it's important that they remain ecumenical, meaning to be interreligious or interdenominational. And is the only time I've heard that word used outside of an episode of Father Ted. Maybe we could teach him to say one or two things. Nothing too specific, a few all-purpose sentences like, that would be an ecumenical matter. <laughs> yes, I can't think of any religious question that can't be answered by that. I was just saying, Father, how I'm looking forward to discussing the social effects of some of the church's thinking as regarding issues of personal morality. That would be an ecumenical matter! <laughs> yes, I... I suppose it would. It's a good point, Father. Zaid says that he needs to leave as he's having a meeting with Scott Ross' sister, and Arif fills Hamid in on who Scott was. In the visiting room, Saeed meets up with Trisha Ross, played by Arya Barakis, which is a name that I know I've pronounced correctly this time because her IMDb has a handy pronunciation guide on how to say it. Born July 21st, 1966 in Bloomington, Indiana, Arya graduated from Stanford University in 1988 and soon moved to Southern California where she briefly took care of horses. She would later move to New York City and work as a paralegal. While she had aspirations to be a dancer, Arya decided to pursue her career in acting, her early work including the short film Joe's Apartment in 1992. Joe's Apartment was later turned into a feature film in 1996, but didn't feature Arya, although it does have a very slight Oz connection, with B.D. Wong providing the voice to one of the film's 1,000 cockroaches. Other early work for Arya include appearances in 1993's Celestial Navigation, Twisted Tales in 1994, and The Naked Man in 1998. While on TV, she made appearances in One Life to Live, where she had the recurring role as Emily DeMauro, and an appearance on Law and Order in 1997, before appearing here on Oz. Saeed introduces himself and shakes a hand as he thanks her for coming. Trisha is in tears and admits that she never visited Scott while he was there, and even says that she tried to on a couple of occasions but that she was never close with her brother, going as far as to tell Saeed that they had different mothers. She apologises to Saeed for crying, and he tells her not to apologise, and hands her a handkerchief, and admits that Oz is a horrific place. Saeed's kufi seems to have had some gold decoration added to it since we saw it last time, perhaps symbolic of Saeed having some sort of halo. They talk about the letter that Saeed sent regarding the lawsuit, and the guard's use of excessive force, and he says that Scott's life was needlessly lost, and asks her if she will join the lawsuit. Much to his surprise, and in somewhat of a swerve, she tells him no, explaining that while Scott was her brother, he was a mean boy who became a mean man, and that while she might not understand how other inmates behave, if the guards used force on Scott, then he probably deserved it. Saeed stares longingly at her, and she calls him out on it, which again catches him by surprise, and for once Saeed seems to be at a loss for words. He says that he respects the decision, but he hopes that she'll reconsider, claiming that the lawsuit is not frivolous, but that he is trying to stop the brutality. She says that she knows what it's like to be treated badly, which Saeed says he can see, and he again goes into this trance where he just stares at Trisha. He snaps out of it and thanks her for coming, and they shake hands. All the while, Schillinger has been taking a visit himself through the glass, and he notices this handshake, and JK gives a great face as if to say, What the fuck? as Saeed gets up to leave. No idea who Schellinger was visiting with, and I doubt we'll ever find out, but it was a woman, we know that much. 
Later in the cafeteria, Saeed is sat reading and drinking a juice, as Schillinger gives us the definition of miscegenation. He's even polite enough to spell it out for us. It's called miscegenation, mixing the races. That's M-I-S-C-E-G-E-N-A-T-I-O-N. He asks accomplished wordsmith Saeed whether that spelling is correct. It is, and just so you know, miscegenation is worth a minimum 18 points in Scrabble. Although I suppose you'd have to add it to the start of the word nation, assuming it was on the board already. In 1968, the Supreme Court unanimously ruled that it was unconstitutional for state laws to prohibit miscegenation. Which, and I mean... A racist's personal ideology on the subject is one thing, but the idea that cohabitation of the races could be deemed to be against the law, as recent as 50 odd years ago, is both terrifying and fucking ridiculous. Saeed puts his book down, and I only noticed this for the first time watching this episode. Part of the front cover of the book that he's reading is blurred out on the DVD version. I've no idea if it went unblurred in the broadcast version, but I'm assuming that they couldn't get legal clearance to use this person's likeness for the DVD. But, with a little detective work, I've managed to find out that this book is Soul on Ice by Eldridge Cleaver, who was an early leader of the Black Panther Party. Originally written in 1965 while serving time at Folsom State Prison, where he was serving a conviction for sexual assault with the intent to murder, the book was released in 1968, two years after Cleaver's release, and the book remains a seminal work in African-American literature. In June 1982, the book was one of 11 involved in the Island Trees School District vs. Pico case, and was either restricted or removed entirely from libraries by the Island Trees Union Free School District Board of Education in New York. However, due to the outcome of the case, the book returned to library shelves in August that year. Cleaver was heavily influenced by Malcolm X and W.E.B. Du Bois in his political outlook, who we know are also a big influence in Saeed. And you can buy Soul on Ice from Amazon for just under £7, and although not connected to the book, is a really good song on the Born a Lion album by Danko Jones. Saeed asks what Schillinger is after, and Schillinger says that he isn't after anything. And I like the joking way that he referred to Saeed as Your Holiness. He says that he saw Saeed with Trisha, who he refers to as Trailer Park Trash, which seems out of place seeing as he had a history with Scott. Saeed insists that it was a business meeting, which leads to Schillinger saying some horrendous racist comments which I'm not going to repeat. And that's not me being woke or any of that shit. You know what they were and there's no need for me to repeat them. His comments lead to both the Muslims and the Aryans rising to their feet, but Saeed tells everyone to sit down as Schillinger tells them to ask Saeed why he's been making goo eyes at a white gal. Saeed says that's not true, but Schillinger tells him that he knows what he saw, and even gives Saeed the goo eyes himself, which was really funny. JK has been really good in this episode. The two stare down some more as Arif looks to Saeed for an answer, but receives nothing from his leader, as we cut to Saeed taking a shower gathering his thoughts, as Augustus monologues about people being unable to confess certain things to themselves to close out Act 3. Everybody sit down. Yeah, sit, boys. Ask your minister how come he's making goo-goo eyes at a white gal. That is not true. Go ahead and deny it. I know what I saw. There are some confessions that you can't even make to yourself. Yearnings, desires, that if you admitted to having, you'd have to stop being who you are. 
and the facade you've built so carefully would crumble, exposing to those around you what really makes you twink. Act 4 gets underway with Boost Mallis, who has the work excitement of being the official Oz window cleaner, it would seem. The buzzer for the count sound as Metzger makes his way up some stairs, I think they're the ones that lead up to McManus' office, and tells Boost Mallis to move his big ugly ass. Boost Mallis wants to finish the windows, claiming that he's nearly done, and Metzger says, Oh, are you now? as he places Boost Mallis in a chokehold. Boost Mallis struggles for breath as Metzger says that's how Mac felt as the tunnel collapsed on him, and he never believed his and Ribido's story about it being an accident. He suddenly realises that Boost Mallis is suffocating and throws him down some stairs. Two guards come over to check on Boost Mallis as well as looking up to Metzger, who tells them to get him to the hospital. Cut to nighttime where McManus visits with Ribido, who's asked to speak with him, saying it's an emergency. He asks for an update on Boost Mallis, and McManus explains that he's having trouble breathing, but he is hooked up to oxygen. Ribido says, The man's a Nazi! To which McManus asks, Boost Mallis? Which got a massive laugh out of me, but of course, Ribido is meaning Metzger, and he points up to him at the control desk. McManus says that Metzger's tough, but Ribido says that even McManus can't be that blind, and says that Metzger is part of the Aryan Brotherhood, and that a bunch of things have happened that have directly benefited the Aryans since Metzger's arrival, and mentions about what happened to Sipple and the attack on Beecher. McManus says that he knows that, and Ribido questions how Metzger still has his job. McManus assures him that Metzger won't be around much longer, and that he may be blind, but he's not dumb, and then leaves the pod. Really good scene between these two, and while it was nice to see Ribido being so concerned about his friend, he's also concerned about himself, as he's the only member of the others left in MC. Beecher and Boos Mallis are both in the hospital, while Augustus is fuck knows where after escaping in the casket at the end of series 2. He's an old man in amongst a group of younger, stronger, and potentially volatile, dangerous men. It's a scary time to be Ribido. In the locker room, McManus is packing his things away as Metzger sits down next to him after taking a shower. Oh, what's the word on Bus Malice? Do you really care? Wouldn't ask if I didn't. You care, uh, why? Because you used excessive force, you're afraid to look bad on your record. I did not use excessive force. The man almost died. But he didn't. Yeah. Because you knew exactly when to let go. What's the motto? Choke him till you smell shit. Nice tattoo. Souvenir of a misspent youth. Metzger. I know who you are. I know what you are. All I am is a highly trained, underpaid member of the Correctional Officers Benevolent Association. But if I am what you think I am, you should tiptoe. So Metzger warns McManus to tread carefully, which McManus asks if that's a threat or not. Metzger saying that he's simply reminding him who his friends are in case someone comes at him with a knife. Nice to see that Mamana still has his big brown coat as well. He might not wear caps anymore, but I was glad to see that coat back. Mamanis visits with Leo and Sister Pete to discuss Metzger, and he's reading from a file saying that prior to coming to Oz, Metzger lived in Montana, where he was part of the White Supremacy Warriors. I'm guessing this is some sort of dossier that Mamanis has put together rather than this being Metzger's official file as that second bit of info would be very dangerous to put in there. 
White Supremacy Warriors seems to have just been created for the show, although I did find some evidence for a group known as the Montana Separatist Alliance dating back to 1990, although there's no evidence to suggest that the group are active anymore. Sister P asks McManus if he is sure about what he's alleging, but McManus says that he has a friend at the FBI who's verified it. Leo says that you can't fire someone for something they did 15 years ago, and he says that he needs proof that Metzger is in cahoots with Schillinger and is responsible for what happened in the other instances. McManus says that no one will testify, which leaves Leo to point out that Metzger's union isn't going to do anything without evidence. Ironic considering how Leo tried so hard to pin the Vogel murder on Schillinger and the Aryans despite having no evidence. Leo also mentions that Metzger is popular with the COs and that he doesn't need morale problems. McManus resorts to extreme measures, and a strong language warning is in effect on this one. So we let him stay on board till maybe he kills somebody? I have no choice. Even though he thinks of you as a nigger? What'd you say? A nigger! Are you trying to piss me off? You're succeeding. I don't want Metzger in this building one minute longer than you do. But if I'm going to take him down, I'm going to need ammunition. All right, I'll see what I can do. It's no secret that Leo and McManus aren't best friends, but there is a respect there between them when it comes to the job. McManus resorting to using the N-word in front of Leo was a ballsy move, and could have done a lot of damage to whatever relationship they have, and it's an interesting plot point that they could run with throughout the rest of the series. In the hospital, Gloria visits with Beecher and tells him that his bones have healed, which, as I talked about earlier in Miguel's scene, worked well to gauge how much time had passed between series. According to the NHS, a broken arm can take around six to eight weeks to heal, which is the same for a minor fracture of the leg, but a major fracture of the tibia or fibula, the bones in the lower leg below the knee, can take between three and six months. Keller, of course, did massive damage to Beecher in the gym, so it's more likely that we're in the latter time frame. Adam Easy growing his hair out whilst down in psych also serves as a good indicator of how much time has passed. Same with Leo's lovely beard. While his bones have healed and he's off back to M-City, Beecher does still need to wear an ankle brace, as well as using a walking cane. Beecher's also grown his beard out again whilst being in hospital, which I've said before I think is a much better look for him. And Gloria casually mentions about him needing to cut his fingernails, Beecher saying that he will once he gets back to his pod. But Manus comes to talk with Beecher and Boost Malice, who's in the bed next to Beecher, and says that he knows that Metzger is at the very least partially responsible for what happened to them, loosely referring to them as accidents. He says that he wants them both to testify against Metzger, but Boosmalis can only communicate through hand gestures at this point, and Beecher says that he doesn't know what McManus is talking about, insisting that while Metzger did escort him to the gym, he left him there. McManus asks what happened after that, but Beecher claims not to remember, as we get a flashback of Keller breaking Beecher's limbs, which is still absolutely brutal, partly down to the excellent use of sound effects on those breaks. Beecher says that the human mind has the amazing ability to erase the unpleasant parts of life as he takes a walk around to get used to his cane before we cut to him returning to M-City. And we see that Augustus is in fact still in Oz, so his plan to escape unsurprisingly didn't work, just like poets said it wouldn't. They don't mention it here, and I can't remember if it ever gets mentioned in a future episode or if we just have to accept that Augustus got caught. The rest of the inmates, as well as Metzger, watch Beecher make his way to his pod, where Keller is laying on his bed. To say that the atmosphere is frosty would be an insult to frost. It's more like a fucking iceberg. 
BJ hops up to the top bunk, pretty well done considering he's wearing that ankle brace, and he takes out a nail file to sort out his nails, just like he promised Gloria. BJ. Yeah? Look, I know there's no reason for you to believe me, but, um... <laughs> You're sorry? Yeah. And you promise you'll never do it again. Look. I'm serious. No doubt. Three months you were in the hospital, I had a lot of time to think. Of me? Look, what I did was wrong. I've been trying to figure out a way to prove to you that I'm truly sorry. And I do love you. How about I fuck you in the ass? I bet you break my arm. Mm, I'm gonna do a shitload more than that. Break my arm, break both my arms, bend my legs, break every fucking bone in my body. I'm not gonna tell the hex nothing. How stupid do you think I am? You let me break your legs. And then you snitch on me. I won't, I swear. Swear. Promise. Take an oath, make a vow. And go fuck yourself. So understandably, Beecher is not buying Keller's apology or his declaration of love. It's an interesting development of the Keller character, and as we saw at the end of the previous series, there was that shot of him looking somewhat remorseful over what he'd done. He mentioned about Schillinger saving his life before he broke Beecher's arms and legs, but in the lead-up to it he needed to act as if he and Schillinger were on the same page. So could it be that breaking Beecher's limbs was the favour that he owed Schillinger? And now that he's free of that, he's hoping that he can now move forward with his real feelings for Beecher. Much like when Beecher snapped and Schillinger was in fear of him, as well as with Beecher questioning his sexuality, Keller is now the one conflicted and at the behest of Beecher. It's another well-portrayed role reversal. Keller says there must be something he can do to prove himself to Beecher, who says there is something he can do that will make him believe that he is truly sorry. All Keller has to do is confess. But Keller says that if he does that, then he's a dead man, Beecher rising a sly smile to that before going back to his fingernails. Keller implies that he'll go to McManus with a confession, but he's going to leave Metzger and Schillinger out of it and take the rap himself, which Beecher says isn't good enough. Keller then tells him, fine, I'll tell McManus everything, but Beecher doesn't believe him as Keller storms out of the pod and demands to see McManus. Metzger is still watching from the control desk as Menio escorts Keller away, and quick as a flash, Metzger heads downstairs, clearly spooked by why Keller is wanting to speak to McManus. He heads into Beecher's pod, asking him what's going on, but when Beecher says that he doesn't know, Metzger grabs him and drags him away to talk. Grabbing Beecher from the top bunk like that could have really fucked his ankle up again, and Beecher does sell there being pain, but he does manage to hobble away. Metzger takes Beecher to a dark, secluded corridor, it might even be the same one where the Italians killed Johnny Post, and he demands to know what's going on and why Keller is off to see McManus. Beecher insists that he doesn't know, but Metzger isn't having any of it and starts to threaten Beecher, going to grab him by his shirt. 
Beecher pushes Metzger's hand away and slashes at Metzger's face using his fingernails, which he's fashioned into what are basically claws. We get a quick shot of Keller talking with McManus, but are quickly back to the attack from Beecher. Metzger tries to cover his face, but Beecher continues to slash away at his victim, finishing the assault with a thrust to Metzger's throat. Metzger falls to the wall behind him, blood gushing from the wound on his throat. He tries to radio for backup, but falls to the ground as Beecher stands over his prey. I'll talk more about this attack from Beecher and the consequences in my wrap-up at the end, but I fucking loved this when I first saw it, and I honestly didn't see it coming. Watching it again, the signs are there with Gloria mentioning about Beecher's fingernails, but we're not shown them on screen and the delivery is very throwaway, so you'd be forgiven for not picking up on it. When he gets back to M-City, he sets about filing his nails, but again, there isn't a shot of them. You never see the full extent of how long they've grown since he's been in the hospital. And he did say that he would sort them once he got back, so you figure that's exactly what he's doing. With regards to the killing of Metzger, we do have to talk a little about the elephant in the room, that being that 20 plus years on, this prosthetic makeup looks fucking awful. In fact, the way that scene is put together, it's almost like they weren't happy with it at the time, hence why you've got Metzger standing in a dark, shadowy corridor. I'm not claiming to be a professional makeup artist or anything, I mean absolutely no disrespect to either Stephen Lawrence or Craig Lyman, who are credited as the makeup department on this episode, but they didn't even manage to get the colours to match Metzger's skin tone. It looks like he spread cement on his face. The blood also looked a little too watery for my liking, and it's a shame that this episode has this as the closing scene, because apart from the scene earlier with Miguel in solitary where it was really dark, there does seem to be somewhat of an upgrade to the overall look of the show. Diane heads to Schillinger's cell and tells him that they're off for a little chat with McManus and Leo, saying that Keller has confessed to the attack on Beecher in the gym, and that Metzger and Schillinger were both involved. Schillinger calls it horseshit, and that Keller knows that if he messed with him, then he'd be a dead man. Diane saying that he won't be if he's put into protective custody. Right on cue, we see Keller being placed into a cell in protective custody, along with Schillinger being placed in the hall. We also get a shot of Metzger's dead body still in the corridor, and the show closes on Beecher cutting his fingernails using some nail clippers and flushing the evidence down the toilet, as Augustus narrates about the truth being a powerful thing, as Officer Menio calls lights out to end the episode. Schillinger, come on. What's up? McManus and Glynn want to have a little chat. About what? Your little pal Keller confessed. Put you and Metzger in for the beating on Beecher. Horse shit, he'd never do that. Dude, now the Piper's looking for his paycheck. Nice try. Fucked up, Vern. Trusted him. Keller knows if he fucks with me, he's a dead man. Well, not if he's in protective custody, sweetheart. Truth is a powerful thing. It can right a wrong or make a bad thing worse. But in Oz, the truth is if the facts don't fit the truth, fuck the facts.
So there you go, Series 3, Episode 1, The Truth and Nothing But. I really enjoyed this episode, much more than I did with the opener from Series 2. It's a much stronger episode. We've covered a lot of ground as there are a ton of new faces that have joined the show, both in terms of inmates as well as on the staff. But there are also continuing plot threads, and while there is a passage of time here from where Series 2 ended, this episode could have quite easily slotted into that series had the series been longer than 8 episodes. The Ryan Schillinger feud got some more airtime, as well as Schillinger getting a bit of a side plot involving Saeed, whose leadership is coming under scrutiny. Miguel is continuing down a dark path while he's locked away in solitary. Adebisi returns a changed man. All the while, Leo and his staff are having to deal with more outside influences. And McManus and Leo's already strained relationship is being put to the test. On top of all of that, Beecher and Keller's storyline has taken a turn with Keller trying to prove himself, and Beecher commits an act with massive, far-reaching consequences, but I'll talk more about that in a moment. The episode also saw the least number of casualties for a series opener so far, with only one confirmed death, although Jazz tried his best to up that number by attempting to shank Schillinger in the gym. So, with the death of Officer Carl Metzger at the claws of Beecher, that means we say goodbye to Bill Fagerbecky. As previously mentioned, Bill is most famous as a voiceover actor, and since leaving Oz has been in regular demand, with credits for The Wild Thornberries for Nickelodeon, Roughnecks The Starship Troopers Chronicles, where he played the part of Corporal Jeff Gozzard, 39 episodes of Disney's Lloyd in Space, Transformers Animated on Cartoon Network, as well as recurring roles in Batman The Brave and the Bold, All Hail King Julian, and Dorothy and the Wizard of Oz, where he played the part of Scarecrow. In addition to his voiceover work, Bill has made on-screen appearances in 2000's The Ultimate Christmas Present for Walt Disney Pictures, the definitely not-for-kids Ken Park from 2002, 2003's Quigley, the Oscar-winning The Artist in 2011, and on TV as Marvin Sr. over the course of nine seasons of How I Met Your Mother for CBS. As I mentioned when I introduced him on the show, Bill is by far and away best known as the voice of Patrick Starr, the lovable oaf and best friend of Spongebob Squarepants, a role he has played since 1999 for 240 episodes at the time of recording, with the show returning to Nickelodeon in 2020 for its 13th season, as well as in three feature films, the most recent, the Spongebob movie Sponge on the Run set for release in May, and 19 video games. We also say goodbye to Nick Gomez, who is leaving after directing his third episode of the show. Nick followed up this episode of Oz with the feature film Drowning Mona, starring Danny DeVito, Bette Midler, Neve Campbell, a yet-to-hit-it-big Will Ferrell, and also reunited with Oz alumni Paul Schultz, who played Officer Rick Heim in the series too. The film was a box office flop, grossing just under $16 million worldwide from a $37 million budget. Following the film's failure, Nick returned to directing TV, where he has since become one of its most consistent directors, with credits on shows such as Third Watch for NBC, three episodes of The Shield on FX, along with multiple episodes of The 4400 for CBS, Sleeper Cell and Dexter on Showtime, the latter seeing him reunite with Lauren Velez, Flash Forward on ABC, Burn Notice for the USA Network, Law & Order Special Victims Unit reuniting with Dean Winters, as well as 15 episodes of NBC's Chicago PD. He also has single episode credits for shows such as Veronica Mars on UPN, True Blood for HBO, NBC's ill-fated Knight Rider reboot, Blue Bloods on CBS as well as episodes of Daredevil for Netflix and Titans for DC Universe, and his most recent work include episodes of NBC's New Amsterdam and Ray Donovan on Showtime. 
my episode MVP. This was really difficult to pick as I kind of wanted to split it for both the acting work as well as for a character's actions. I thought Kirk was really good showing Miguel continuing to suffer in solitary, we also saw one of JK's best performances of Schellinger to date, particularly in the scenes with Saeed. However, I am going to stick to giving it to a character, and despite not appearing until very late in the episode, I'm giving the award to Beecher following his taking out of Karl Metzger. Ribido alludes to how things have been favouring the Aryans since Metzger's arrival, and McManus has been biding his time waiting for the right moment to remove Metzger. But Beecher turned everything upside down and not only gained a measure of revenge for the attack in the gym, but he's also taken the power away from Schillinger and the Aryans going forward, both in M-City and in Genpop. And he's done it in such a way that he was able to not only commit the murder, but destroy the evidence afterwards. With McManus looking to remove Metzger regardless, it's safe to assume that he isn't going to be quick to launch an investigation into finding the killer, and it also serves as Beecher's first kill since coming to Oz. It's taken him 17 episodes to get there, but it's a much needed strike that he's earned, and with it will come a lot of respect from inmates wronged by Metzger and the Aryans. So for those reasons, Tobias Beecher picks up the episode MVP. And in the result of Homicide or Nomicide, Kristen Roda did of course appear in Homicide prior to Oz. She played the role of Sergeant Sally Rogers, appearing in 17 episodes over the course of Season 3 to Season 7. So well done if you got that right. If you need to catch up on any episodes of the podcast, you can do so by heading over to Apple Podcasts, formerly known as iTunes, Podbean, Stitcher Radio, Acast, Overcast, Castbox, or wherever you get your podcasts from, where you will find the first two series of Inside Oz, as well as the bonus Outside Oz content. Subscribe to the show so that you never miss an episode, leave a five-star review wherever you can to help with exposure for the show, and if you have any Oz-related or non-related questions or comments, you can get in touch with the show by emailing insideozpodcast at gmail.com or on social media on both Instagram and Twitter using the handle at insideozpodcast. Next time on Inside Oz, we're off back to the French Revolution and de-pantsing a general as we take a look at Series 3, Episode 2, Napoleon's Bony Parts. When McManus deals with the aftermath of Metzger's murder, Adebisi formulates a plan to get back at Napa, while Miguel continues to spiral out of control in solitary. All of this and more, but until then, I have been Neil Thompson, and I will catch you on the next episode of Inside Oz, the world's only Oz Review Podcast. Catch you later, everyone. It's important in times like these that we remain ecumenical.